the History Show with Mars Duncan. Good evening on this week's programme. This was something that confounded a very confident contemporary medicine. Medicine was working out of its skin back then, just like it is now to come up with new solutions to this really perplexing disease. Vaccines, quarantine and the fear of a fourth wave. We look back at the 1918 influenza pandemic and explore some parallels with what's happening today. Also, when you think of the hustle and bustle of the cargo, the dockers, the carters and all that, the idea that there's a luxury hotel sitting in the middle of that is incredible. War and peace in a Docklands hotel. How a luxury hotel on Dublin's North Wall Quay became a vital hub of activity during Ireland's revolutionary decade. The IRA used gas bombs. They had manufactured gas bombs and they were used in the attack and, you know, I suppose that adds to the horror. And the audacious IRA bomb attack on the Crown Forces base there a century ago this week. But to begin this evening, I'm joined now by Dr Ida Milne, Social Historian of Disease and Medicine and lecturer at Carlow College, who's researched and written extensively on the influenza pandemic in Ireland in 1918 and 1919. Heidi, you're very welcome back to The History Show. Thank you for having me on. Now, you joined us about 13 months ago, around the time of the first confirmed cases of COVID-19 in Ireland. I think it was actually one of the last uh, in-studio live interviews that we did, if not the last. Uh, And you joined us then to talk about the many echoes and the lessons from a century ago that can inform the present situation. And obviously a lot has happened in the interim. Today, the fear of a fourth wave of the virus is one of the things influencing the government's decision-making. Within Ireland, there were three waves of the so-called and erroneously named Spanish flu. In your research, did you find that there was fear of a fourth wave? Oh, absolutely. Um, and in a way, that fear was sometimes expressed by not talking about it rather than talking about it. I interviewed a man called Tommy Christian, who was five years old when he caught it here, right beside me in our clock in, in uh, North Kildare. And when I asked him why it hadn't been talked about afterwards, he said, look, it kept coming back and then it had come back and then it came back again. And he said, we were just afraid if we spoke about it, that, that it would come again. But when you look through the newspapers uh, for years afterwards, there is a kind of non-naming naming of it, if you like, that they'll talk. There was a severe outbreak of flu in 1925 and they began disinfecting the buses. But they just say, you know, uh, because of past events, they don't say because of the 1918 flu. So that there is always this tension that's hanging in the newspapers, but even though it doesn't exactly express what, what it's talking about. And the same thing is evident in other archival material too, like in hospitals and things, when they say we don't want a repeat of the past, but they don't actually say what they're referring to. So definitely they didn't know when the third wave ended in, in the Irish context in April 1919 that that was going to be it. They suspected that it might come back again. So the great Irish tradition of whatever you say, say nothing. Now, the government's policies and the measures implemented to manage the public health crisis are constantly debated on TV and radio today. Did the administration in 1918 and 1919 face criticism for their response to the pandemic back then? 
Oh, for sure. It was it was a big debate. And uh, the media in particular, the, the, the print news, as it was at the time, were constantly asking questions, particularly of the local government board for Ireland. They'd say, what are the people in the Custom House doing about at this? And that was true even in papers like the Kildare Observer, which is effectively a castle paper, you know, a paper of the establishment. And um, they say that as well as the Nationalist Papers. So really, there was no grand central plan from the local government board. You know, I kind of wonder, had they mentally already backed out of governing Ireland at that stage? But the same thing was true for the local government board for England and Wales and for Scotland as well. There was no grand central plan from them either. So in the absence of that and because of the way the various regulations were set up, it was a a lot of local authority people who took over and in particular in Ireland, I suppose the leading medical figure of authority was Sir Charles Cameron, who was the Dublin Medical Officer of Health and 88 years of old at the time of the flu and very trusted by uh, just about every layer in society, uh, something that he actually talked about himself, you know, that uh, that he knew that he was trusted. And he really uh, stepped in and was sought out by journalists quite a lot and would say things, very simple messaging. He understood that, whereas the local government board's messaging was quite complex. But even he got hit by the media and he says, you know, I'm either I'm told I haven't gone far enough or I'm told I've gone too far. People criticise me. Charles Cameron of Dublin Corporation's Public Health Department. Was he a bit like the the, the Tony Holohan of his of his time, albeit probably about twice Dr. Holohan's age? Absolutely. He was, uh, as you say, you know, it's something that you see with Dr. Holland, if you forgive me for saying that he's, you know, become more and more trusted, I think, by society as this period has gone on. And Cameron was really, he'd been diligently improving the health of Dubliners for 50 years. And the rate of death from infectious disease had gone down from nine per thousand in 1879 to just over one per thousand living in 1917. So the city, for all we hear criticism of the health of Dublin at the time of the revolutionary period, it had improved enormously. And that was in many ways thanks to the actions of Cameron. You mentioned Cameron was a great believer in communication and the importance of communication and the importance of the simplicity or keeping communication as simple as possible, wasn't he? He was. He he was an absolutely brilliant and very clear communicator. And he understood, it's quite clear from his letters to the press, that he put nothing in it that would confound the message that he wanted to get across. So he says things like, you know, the important thing is when you get it to go to bed, stay there until you're well better, because many people get sick or die from another infection after recovering from the flu. And he said then, you know, that it's really important that you have good nursing and that that will save many people. And the other big message that he put across was isolating as far as possible and just sticking away from crowds. But Dublin Corporation issued a really clear poster listing about six or seven points. And there were, you know, I'm pretty sure it was written by Cameron because they were very clear and easy to understand. And again, underlining the messages that he put in his letters, whereas the local government board for Ireland issued a really convoluted pamphlet of of advice that was only carried in the Irish Times. I haven't seen it in any other newspaper. And when you are in a crisis, something I've often been reflecting on at the moment, 
you're looking to the authorities for really easy to understand messages, you know, because you haven't got the capacity to understand complex messages in the normal way when, when you're in a panic about something. So I think he understood that really well. He didn't outlive the pandemic very long himself, though, did he? No, he died 100 years ago last month. Hotel quarantines have obviously been one of the big talking points of the last few months. Internationally, was there any country that imposed a, a rigorous quarantine? Um, well, I suppose in terms of boundaries, the most rigorously imposed one was in Australia, where um, ships coming in would be, you know, people that were suspected of, of being infected would have to stay on them before they disembarked. Otherwise, you don't see that much mention of quarantine, uh, which is quite surprising, given that the concept of quarantine is really well known. I suspect that in the Irish case, the reason, you know, you would have imagined that it would have been easy enough to quarantine us as an island. But that the reason that quarantine wasn't suggested here was because America had just come into the war picture and they were using us as a base to operate the convoy system to protect shipping against the U-boat attacks. But I haven't found any hard evidence of that. But it seems, you know, that might be a factor. Now, the medical community then did, of course, understand bacteria and they also understood the importance of hygiene. In fact, as you've pointed out before, if it wasn't for this new strain of influenza, flu deaths might have been the lowest on record in 1918. Now, I know that's a very big what if, but is that the case? It's not just flu deaths, but actually all deaths would have been the lowest ever in, in 1918. There was something happening then called the, the epidemiological transition. And they thought, um, you know, deaths from particularly from infectious disease were dropping quite rapidly in the Ireland of the 1910s. And they thought this was because they were applying bacteriological methods. And then along came this virus, which confounded everything. They thought at the time the flu was a bacteria probably Pfeiffer's bacillus, which we now know as HIV, but they weren't sure. And this was something that confounded a very confident contemporary medicine. So it really forced them to look harder for answers, much in the same way as this is happening today. You know, that medicine was working out of its skin back then, just like it is now to come up with new solutions to this really perplexing disease. Yeah, on that particular issue in November 1918, I think there was there was an emergency meeting of the Royal Academy of Medicine in Ireland where doctors pooled their suggestions on how to respond to the influenza uh, pandemic. What was their view of vaccines back in 1918? A fascinating question. Some people were very keen on vaccines. Um, Dr. Lynn, Kathleen Lynn, the Sinn Féin doctor, was really, really keen on them. And she was using a preparation made by UCD, a laboratory in UCD at the time, and vaccinated several thousand people in Dublin with it. But her vaccine was made from a mixture of different types of bacteria. And we don't know quite how efficacious they would have been against the flu. But it's possible some of my scientist friends like Dr. Anne Moore in UCC, who's an immunologist, have suggested that it might have prevented a secondary bacterial infection. But at that particular meeting, many of the leading doctors of the city spoke about their use of vaccines and their judgment said overall that the jury was still out really on how effective they were. Some people like William Boxwell were really against them. He had vaccinated a couple of people, people who were already suffering from it, and their health had gone down downhill very quickly and they died in a couple of days. So he actually thought it was quite dangerous. Others thought that they were more effective and at least worth trying. 
so, you know, it, it was really hotly debated. Uh, vaccines were made in many different Irish laboratories, as well as the UCD one. There was one made by uh, Professor Culverwell in Trinity and in other what they called bacteriological laboratories around the country. When it came to the issue of uh, vaccines, obviously one of the things that we're experiencing at the moment is rampant misinformation. Was there misinformation at the time, back in, in 1918, 1919? Yeah, and not so much in, a, in an Irish context, but in an international context, there was quite a lot of debate in, in parts of America and even an anti-vaccine league. The American army were being vaccinated against typhus for entering the war. So a rumour went round that, that that was actually what had caused the flu, that it wasn't an influenza at all, but a reaction to the typhus vaccine. Now, we know now that large public gatherings are one of the ways that this disease or any of these diseases spread, that the uh, pandemic, the Spanish flu pandemic spread as well. Did large gatherings at funerals, for example, contribute to the spread of influenza at the time? or uh, And was that recognised? I think it's quite clear that the uh, kind of traditional Irish funeral, yes, certainly did. And that wakes, wakes were definitely seen as being a problem and may have been a major factor in the fact that Donegal had such a high experience of death from influenza across all three waves in the Irish context, because wakes are a very strong part of Donegal's uh, tradition. But there were also a lot of questions and suggestions about the holding of funerals. Uh, for example, the Archbishop of, the Catholic Archbishop of uh, Dublin, uh, William Walsh, who was in very close touch with Cameron. Uh, there's a lot of correspondence between them over the years. He suggested that for the 1st of November, that people shouldn't observe abstinence or fast in case they, they weakened themselves during the pandemic. And the other thing he suggested was that um, where somebody had died from the flu, uh, that perhaps it was wiser not to bring their corpse into the church, but the people themselves attending the funeral could go in all right. Another uh, phenomenon at the time was, uh, you know, when somebody who was maybe a member of Sinn Féin or otherwise a prominent person died from flu, there was often uh, a very big funeral. And one of those, which has interesting echoes now, too, was a guy called James Toll, a Sinn Féin member from Dundalk, who had 6,000 at his funeral. Um, the Bobby story of his day. Yeah, absolutely. And sometime I must trace and see what happened about a fortnight later to see if there is a spike in deaths in the Dundalk region after that. Now, one of the, the cliches, I suppose, of the current pandemic is we're all in this together, which is treated with considerable and deserve, much deserved scepticism, I think. But another interesting aspect of the influenza pandemic is how people were hit across class lines. Yeah, um, I have really quite strong data from Dublin for that, using the four socioeconomic classes recognised or used by the Registrar General to um, classify death. And the data from that shows that each class was affected, regardless whether it was the first class, you know, the landlords, the senior bankers, uh, whatever, right down to the fourth class. They were all they all suffered in each wave. But it's also quite clear. And um, my colleague Frank Ludlow in Trinity pointed this to me when we were doing an exhibition for Glasnevin Cemetery on the flu, that the upper class seemed to be taking some precautions 
during the really peak weeks of the second and the third wave because there was an inversion in the data. They would start to go up and then at right at the very peak week, they would go down and drop. So he said those people have, have realised that something is happening and they're staying at home. And one newspaper account for, in the Irish Times talks about um, an elite, elite grocer in Westmoreland Street who said um, that the better class of people are sending out for their messages just now. But it doesn't say anything about what happened to the poor devil who was sent out for the messages. Now, historians are often viewed as uh, nerdy individuals who like to populate archives and do stuff that's of very little relevance to what's going on today. Um, I suspect that your work in particular would give the lie to that, that this is really an example of why history and why the study of history is important. I mean, we're looking here at a, a classic example, are we not, of applied history? Absolutely. And it's something I feel very strongly about it in all my work, like my other work as well. I've been in, in something of an unusual position this year. I think I've written in excess of 50,000 words directly myself in the press or on, on blogs and uh, contributed to podcasts and TV and in Britain and Ireland and North America. And it's been Really, I think I suppose helpful for me to think that my work can be used in these ways by different branches of medicine, by, you know, the Irish army as well was interested in my work. And I feel that a lot of the times as as academics were measured by the publications that we do uh, rather than our public history outputs. And, you know, you could do a lot of really good work, put it into an academic journal that might only be seen by 15 or 20 people. The type of work I do looking at public health and looking at how infectious disease was managed in the past and looking at the implications that diseases like COVID or like the 1918 flu, how they impact directly on families. And and of course, I've interviewed a lot of people uh, who talk about the impact of diseases like this over the course of their lives, not just during the immediate crisis. But I think like work like this can be really useful to help inform things like uh, medicine, politicians, public health in general. And I think that as academics, a lot of the time we're measured on you know, the gold standard for an academic is a good academic journal. Whereas perhaps we might have a rethink and think, is something like this history applied an appropriate way to measure our value to society as well? And in a way, maybe that uh, society itself can see more clearly and understand better at a time when we see uh, not so much in Ireland, but in other countries like the UK, for example, that the humanities are seeing in some universities huge reductions in certain departments like English or history or sociology or whatever. My guest is Dr. Ida Mill, lecturer at Carlow College. And by the way, Ida's book on the subject called Stacking the Coffins, Influenza, War and Revolution in Ireland, 1918 to 1919, is available in all good bookshops. Ida, many thanks for joining us once again on The History Show this evening. Thank you for having me. After the break, War and Peace in a Docklands Hotel. Joe Mooney joins me to talk about a new documentary from the East Wall History Group. Stay with us. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. 100 years ago today, at 8am on Monday the 11th of April 1921, workers on their way to Dublin docks witnessed an audacious bomb attack by the IRA. 
Their target was a unit of auxiliaries based at the London Northwestern Railway Hotel on North Wall Quay. To mark the centenary of this event, the East Wall History Group have produced a documentary called War and Peace in a Docklands Hotel, which premiered online earlier today. I'm joined now by two guests, Joe Mooney of the East Wall History Group and historian Liz Gillis. And Joe, the, the documentary covers not just this particular IRA attack, but also the considerable history that's attached to this building. Just give us an idea, locate it for us, if you would, um, and, and tell us what exactly the London Northwestern Railway Hotel was and where it fitted into the, uh, the life of the Docklands. Okay, so the documentary is called War and Peace in the Docklands Hotel, and while we are marking the centenary of the attack, we are also looking at the hotel in peacetime. It has a fascinating history and really it's it's really central to the development of Dublin Port and the North Docklands area. The London and North Western Railway was a British-based company. They had a network all over England and in the mid-1800s they decided it would be financially beneficial to spread our operations to Ireland and to Dublin. So they already had a mail contract in England, they would bring the mail to uh, Hollyhead and they would pass it over and it'd be sent over to Ireland. They had their own sorting offices, etc., on the trains, and as the trains went around England, they would pick up the mail, sort it, drop it off at Hollyhead. They realised it'd be very profitable if they could actually get involved in the operation once they made it to Ireland. But significantly, there was major discussions on relocating the cattle market in Dublin to the Docklands area. The LNWR realised that the cross-channel transportation of cattle was a hugely profitable business and they wanted to get into it. So they built the, um, the, the London and North Western Rail Station at North Wall Quay. Once they're there, the Docklands area is developing. As it happens, the cattle market doesn't move to the Docklands the way it was proposed, but there's still cattle coming through. So the, the London and North Western Railway set themselves up with the cattle business in North Wall once they have the station, they realise there's great potential here. So they invest majorly in rail infrastructure. So what happens is, if you're in, in England, you can travel on the LNWR all over the country. They then invest in a fleet of ships, which you can then travel to Dublin on. And from the London and North Western Rail uh, Station in North Wall Quay, they develop links with Amiens Street. They invest in the, the Phoenix Park Underground Tunnel. So basically, once you get the North Wall from their station, you can link up to other rail stations in Dublin and travel to anywhere in the country. The, the hotel itself, though, wasn't just your average hotel. If you were staying in the LNWR hotel, you were in the lap of luxury, weren't you? Yes, the LNWR hotel was a luxury hotel. Once the LNWR have established their rail station in Dublin, they realise the potential that they're sitting on and they buy up the hotel which was adjacent to them, the Prince of Wales Hotel. That wasn't a luxury hotel, it was a nice hotel, but they transform it majorly and create a luxury hotel. And with their luxury hotel there then, they really realise the tourist potential of what they're sitting on. And they set up a tourist trail which can take you from London all the way across England and bring you to Dublin. They build a walkway from the ships to the hotel and the station, so you don't even have to torch the dirty ground of the Dublin docks if you don't want to, and you can go into the luxury hotel. From the hotel, there's a link to the station, so again, you don't even have to touch the dirty cobbles of Dublin. You can go across to the station and travel to anywhere in Ireland. 
They invest majorly in the tourist trade. They link up with stations all over the country. They start producing um, their own booklets. They produce their own postcards of key locations around the country that people might want to travel to. They tie it in with the English person's knowledge of Ireland. So if there's a royal visit to any part of Ireland, that becomes part of the tourist trail they recommend. The songs of uh, Thomas More are really popular. Uh, the Thomas More songbook is a major seller. So places he mentions in the songs, the meeting of the waters, etc., become tourist destinations through the LNWR. And the hotel gets a reputation for luxury. They have a reputation for fine food, fine wines, and even um, James Joyce is supposed to have come down there because they had a very nice cup of coffee. They produce picnic baskets. So if you come in from England and um, you want to just continue on your journey, you're not going to stay in the hotel, you can go over and you can collect your uh, picnic basket, which you can take on the next step of your journey. So it's really a luxury experience, and it's kind of not what you would really be associating with the Dublin Docklands. When you think of the hustle and bustle of the cargo, the dockers, the characters and all that, the idea that there's a luxury hotel sitting in the middle of that is incredible. And when we're looking at the idea of promoting tourism across the country and turning the Docklands into a tourist destination, you're really only doing what was done 150, 160 years ago. What was its connection then with the Easter Rising? Easter Monday, 1916, at midday, of course, the uh, Republic is proclaimed. Once the news of what's happening in Dublin starts getting out to, to the British authorities, they don't know what's going on. They don't know whether the rising is all over the country. They don't know what they're facing. And suddenly, the Dublin Docklands becomes a major priority. They realise that with the LNWR rail network there, that if you bring troops in from England, you can get them onto Northwall Quay, get them into the station, and the trains can take them anywhere in Dublin. So capturing the Docklands area becomes a priority for the British. The largest body of troops that are instantly available are at Dollymount, in the musketry school in Dollymount. And they're marched down to the Docklands. They have a brief firefight at Ansley Bridge. But very quickly, by the afternoon on Easter Monday, they've taken over um, the London and North Western Rail Hotel and the lands around it. So what you have in the hotel during Easter week, you have Major Somerville from the musketry school takes up command there. They set up a field hospital adjacent to the hotel. But in addition to the troops, you also have guests who were hoping to travel back to England. It was an Easter weekend, of course. So you have people who are waiting to travel out of the country. The shipping has stopped. So you have a load of guests stuck in the hotel. You have the British military taking up occupation. And they very quickly become the target for snipers and from tax in the area from Sheriff Street, from the railway. The hotel comes under attack. It comes under attack from across the river. So you have guests in there, you have soldiers having their dinner, the food starts to run out during the week and you have the windows being shut in regularly. And just to add to the, the eccentric mix that you have in the hotel during the week, you have a number of war correspondents who arrive from England. These guys were destined for France and Belgium to cover um, events in the Great War. They hear what's happening in Dublin and they get dispatched to Dublin. They arrive on Northwall Quay. The area is cordoned off from the rest of the city, so they can't get out. So they end up staying for a couple of days in the London and North Western Rail Hotel. And from there, they do little excursions into the area, which for us, from a historical point of view, is great because you get an eyewitness account of what was going on in the Docklands area from these reporters. But they also get to see some great sights. One of them is invited up on the roof by uh, a British officer who tells him to come up, he's going to see something. And he gets to see the Helga lobbing shells into the South Dock. 
And one journalist makes a great comment. He says something like, where else would you get it that you can sit in a hotel and just by looking through your curtains, you can see revolutionary history in action? So it becomes, like, again, almost like an eccentric part of what's going on in the East Horizon, a kind of quirky story. And um, during the week, the hotel manager, Clara Harris, and 14 staff stay on duty for the entire week. And on one of the days, they apologise that the, the quality of the food is not quite as good as what would normally be expected. But there is fish on the menu because some of the ships coming in with troops are catching Pollock, I think it is, on the way over in nets. And they're bringing that to the hotel so they can have fish. And she assures them that the, the wine cellar is fully stocked and as good as ever. Liz, the ambush took place a century ago. Put it in context for us, if you would. What was the situation with the conflict in Dublin at that time? Was there any sense, any indication, as we know now, that the conflict was actually coming to an end fairly soon? Uh, no, Miles, it was actually escalating on, on both sides. The year 1921 had started pretty badly for the IRA and certainly by March it did look like the Crown forces were gaining the upper hand. If you look at what happened at the start of the year, the IRA losses, you had the Clan Multan Bush, you had the Dripsian Bush, there were a number of IRA men had been executed in Cork and the authorities were actually ramping up the executions. And that had been the case back in autumn 1920 when it looked like the British were making inroads, that they were getting the upper hand, but then the IRA hit back and marches the turning point. You had the active service unit of the Dublin Brigade set up. Now you had the flying columns around the, the country. But in Dublin, they were really part-time volunteers. So they set up the active service unit, a full-time dedicated unit of about 50 men who their only aim was to take the fight to the enemy. Attack them at every opportunity. And um, there was a section for each of the Dublin battalions. So they're out in force and then... You have the executions on the 14th of March of the six IRA men in Mountjoy Jail. And that evening, the IRA were told to go out on the attack. And you just see an increase in the attacks from all of the battalions of the Dublin Brigade. So it didn't seem like it was going to end anytime soon. And Joe, what was a unit of the auxiliaries doing stationed in this hotel in April of 1921? So the 21st of March 1921, Q Company of the Auxiliaries gets posted to the Dublin Docklands and they're barracked at the LNWR Hotel. Q Company is set up for the purpose of intercepting weapons, munitions, explosives, suspicious persons, messages, etc. that are used in the docks as a base. Of course, it makes a lot of sense going back to the early days of James Connolly and the Citizen Army, the, the Dublin Docks became a centre of weapons smuggling for the Republican movement. So in the previous years, there's weapons coming in constantly. Practically every ship that's coming and going has some element of Republican supporters amongst the crew, either on the ships or on the docks. They're bringing in weapons. They're smuggling people out who are wanted. So with the escalation that Liz has just talked about, um, it's decided to base Q Company directly on the Northwall Quay and their job will be to search every single ship coming and going to intercept wherever they can and neutralise the IRA in Dublin. They're not there for long before the IRA hits them. What was the plan 
on that day, on the 11th of April, when the attack on the hotel took place. Okay, so with the arrival of Q Company on Northwall Quay, I mean, this is a this is an affront to the IRA in Dublin. This is part of their heartland. This is a key operation zone for them, and with the auxiliaries uh, based on the key, able to service every ship, it's going to damage their capability to pursue the war, uh, which, as Liz has explained, is escalating. Q Company's brag is that um, we shall have a complete stranglehold of the traffic in munitions. And that's their aim, and that's what they're, they're hoping to do by being based at Northwall. So what happens is, straight away, the IRA have to respond. An order is given straight away that uh, this base has to be attacked, and within three weeks of the arrival, the operation is carried out. The IRA would have had fairly strong roots in the North Docklands community historically. Um, the Citizen Army and the volunteers were quite strong in the area, so they've been rooted in the area for many years. It's a very, very tight-knit community. Everybody works together, everybody lives together, and there's a huge crossover. Everybody knows each other. So when they decide to carry out the attack, it's only three weeks between them arriving and the attack taking place, but they're very quickly able to put a major plan in place to launch a very precise, a very well-timed, and what is hoped to be a devastating attack. They're able to use the local knowledge to great effect. And something people need to remember, when you think of the Dublin docks now, there was no bridges between the custom house and the keys. The custom house was the last bridge along. So once you went past there, you were using the road or the river to travel. So the plan for the 2nd Battalion of the IRA under Tom Ennis, in relation to the auxiliaries based at the hotel, is they're going to launch a full frontal assault on the hotel. They're going to attack the front of the hotel with gunfire. They're going to attack the sides of the hotel with grenades, gas bombs, and they're also going to take up positions to the rear and on neighbouring buildings. And they're basically going to pour fire into the building. The overall plan is that by attacking the building, as the grenades go through the windows, as the smoke bombs and gas bombs go through the windows, the auxiliaries will be rushed, will rush to the front of the building to regroup. And they're going to move a very large landmine in a cart up to the front of the building. So as the auxiliaries gather at the front, the mine will detonate and the plan is that there'll be massive casualties and the possibility even of bringing down the front of the building. Now, where the local knowledge really comes into place is how they're going to do this. The auxiliaries are probably the cream of the crop of the British troops in Ireland. They're here for the one and only purpose is to beat the IRA militarily. They're all ex-military, they've all got war experience and the IRA know taking them on in a straight fight is very difficult. They're going to do it at the hotel, but they're not going to take any chances and they block off the entire docklands around them. They use their local knowledge to obstruct the bridges at Spencer Dock. There's lifting bridges to allow ships to get access from the Liffey into Spencer Dock. They're going to lift both of those bridges so vehicles can come down. Further along at Lower Sheriff Street, there's another bridge. They're going to open that, which is going to close that area off. And at Newcomen Bridge in the North Strand and Aransley Bridge on Eastwall Road, they're going to set up barricades and push support parties in to attack any reinforcements coming in. The attack is timed for 8 o'clock in the morning. Again, this is where the local knowledge and the knowledge of the workings of the docks is really important because 8 o'clock is a shift change. 
So you have ships on the keys loading and unloading. You have dockers coming and going to work. You have carters, etc., coming up and down. And on Monday, there's no passenger ships come in. So they know there's going to be no hapless civilians caught up in the activity when it takes place. So this is all put into place. At 10 to 8 in the morning, the bridges are open. No more access can come in. And at 8 o'clock, a number of men dressed as dockers, they possibly were dockers, they might have gone into work afterwards, walk up to the front of the building and shoot the sentry there, and the attack is on. Uh, so then tell us how the attack actually goes, because, let's face it, it wasn't the most successful IRA assault in the history of the War of Independence, was it? No, and I think that that's the thing about this attack. In some ways, it's certainly overshadowed by what happened afterwards, which was the burning of the Custom House. But it's often forgotten about, and I think part of the reason is that it didn't succeed the way it planned. Again, it was meticulously planned, it was timed absolutely perfect, but what really tripped up the, the operation or what made sure it didn't succeed was the failure of munitions. And this was a persistent problem that the Republican movement had faced uh, in the War of Independence. At this time in Dublin, the IRA were operating a number of their own bomb factories. They were manufacturing their own munitions. They were manufacturing possibly a thousand grenades a week. But the problem is a lot of them wouldn't work as planned and a lot of their explosives around the country and in Dublin wouldn't detonate as proposed. So what happens is at 8 o'clock the attack is launched. It all goes exactly as Tom Ennis, etc., who's commanding the operation, has planned. They open fire on the building, they throw in their grenades, they throw in phosphorus bombs which create a noxious gas and starts filling the hotel. But a lot of the grenades they throw in don't actually detonate. And what happens is one of the auxiliary commanders is running down the stairs uh, mobilising men and he actually gets hit with a grenade so hard it knocks him over and his hat comes off. He falls on the ground and it lands beside him and sits there, does nothing. He gets up, regroups. The auxiliaries do mobilise towards the front of the building. When Tom Ennis realises this has gone the way they wanted it, he orders the mine to be lit. They light the fuse on the mine and nothing happens. The mine doesn't detonate. So 20 minutes of a fierce firefight, Tom Ennis blows the whistle and the men start to withdraw. Despite the failure of munitions there to do what they were meant to do, the operation is so well planned that in a firefight of the intensity that they're engaged in for 20 minutes, they reckon up to 70 attackers were involved in the overall attack. There's only one casualty. An IRA man is shot outside. He stands up to throw a grenade in and he gets shot in the face. That's the only casualty. The IRA use the barrels that have gathered up around the keys. They turn them on their side and they start pushing them forward like something you'd see in a cowboy movie and start shooting from behind them. All the windows of the hotel are shot up. But once they give the order to withdraw, they withdraw fully. They back away up the keys. Of course no one has got down because the bridges are open. They go out across the rail lines, which they know very well, and they disappear in the streets around it. The auxiliaries give chase very briefly, realise... It's not a good idea. They don't know whether they're walking themselves into further ambushes and back away. And aside from that one casualty, everybody involved in their operation gets away, despite the intensity and despite what they're up against. Uh, Liz, tell me about the newspapers of the time. How did they report the attack? 
On the, in the days following, Miles, the newspapers are, are full of accounts of the attack and really, really dramatic. Like it's it's thrilling actually when you're reading them. It's like you're there. It's minute by minute accounts and like really dramatic headlines. And they mentioned the fact that the IRA used gas bombs and they had manufactured gas bombs and they were used in the attack. And, you know, I suppose that adds to the horror because the recent memory of gas being used in the First World War and so on. They use uh, terms like, um, you know, it was an attack of a very determined nature. Also describing vividly what the scenes were like, that the pungent odour of gas was everywhere. But also sort of reflecting on the determination on the Republicans who attacked because they do say that the attack was carried out with example Kuna. So it's like they're sort of saying that it's a, a military force that has been involved in this attack against the auxiliaries. But then there's some sort of um, humorous descriptions um, because some of the auxiliaries had come in from patrol Others were still in bed when the attack opened. And one thing that the, the auxiliaries, what this, what makes them so distinctive was the Glengarry caps. And those in their pyjamas just grabbed their caps and started fighting. But they report in the newspapers, them, you know, that a number of the aux- auxiliaries fall in their pyjamas. So you just have, you know, you've seen the photographs of the auxiliaries, fearless men and arms to the teeth. But then just get this picture of auxiliaries fighting in their pyjamas with, with a Glengarry cap on them. <laughs> so they report everything in detail. Uh, Joe, tell us about the documentary. How did it come about? Uh, how, how did you actually make it? With, with this being the centenary year, it was something that we've, um, we would have looked forward to like in recent years. We've done a lot of work around, of course, the 1916 rise and the 1913 lockout. And we would have seen this um, this event as something we would have looked forward to commemorating. But of course, with the year that's in it and the, with COVID, uh, we, we couldn't do it the way we would have liked it. And like everybody else in the last year, we've learned the power of uh, having Zoom meetings and producing our own videos. So it's something we started to do to make up for the fact that we can't have live events. So... We decided the best way to approach this would be to make a short documentary about it and with funding from Dublin City Council's uh, Decade Commemorations Fund who very generously funded it, we've got two young um, filmmakers, um, Louis Maxwell and Connor Forkin and we asked them to make this documentary for us. So um, as I mentioned earlier, it's called War and Peace in the Docklands Hotel. It was very important to obviously commemorate the attack of 100 years ago but we also thought with so much of the Docklands history disappearing and so little to see when you go down North Wall Quay to actually remind you what life was like there, we thought it was important to also cover the much longer history of the hotel and bits of history of the local area. So the documentary covers the development of the hotel, the development of the tourist industry in the hotel and also, of course, the attack. And we have Derek Molyneux, um, the author of a number of books on the revolutionary period is featured. He describes the attack in great detail. And Liz also makes an appearance where she um, describes the overall context in relation to what was going to come next, which was the burning of the custom house. So it's available on the East Wall History Group Facebook page and on the East Wall History Group YouTube page. We'll put links 
to both of those on our own website. The documentary is called War and Peace in a Docklands Hotel. It tells the story, as Joe says, not just of an attack that took place 100 years ago today, but the social history of a working-class community in the heart of Dublin City. Joe Mooney and Liz Gillis, thank you both very much for joining us this evening. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after these. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. Welcome back. Well, we've just been hearing about the LNWR Hotel and events there during Ireland's decade of revolution. And speaking of buildings with a strong revolutionary heritage, I want to mention a documentary called Ivra Shea, that's on TG Car on Cajun Shoching, that's uh, this Wednesday coming, the 14th of April, at half past nine. It tells the story of Number 6 Harcourt Street, an elegant Georgian townhouse that today serves as the headquarters of Conrad Aguilga. The building has a long association with the nationalist movement, serving at one time as the headquarters of Sinn Féin. In the early months of the breakaway republic in 1919, Number 6 served as the de facto ministerial offices for the government. Michael Collins used an office there to administer the Dáil loan. This is Conor Nagelge curator, Kuhn O'Sheridan. Because raising taxes was quite difficult in the situation they were in, the decision was made that they would borrow the money, they would sell bonds, and they would try to get people to invest in the idea of an Irish Republic. All of the documents were designed for this and all of the marketing, marketing was a very important part of this, all of that was conceived in these walls. On the 12th of September 1919, there was a major raid on the building. This was when the British government had finally decided to completely shut down Dáil Éireann. And part of that is to come in here in force and arrest a couple of people and disrupt the activities in the headquarters. And there's an incident which takes place in Michael Collins' office where Inspector Neil McFeely comes into the office and encounters Collins. This incident was recalled by Evelyn Lawless, secretary to Michael Collins, in her witness statement to the Bureau of Military History. Mick said, We're caught like rats in a trap and there's no escape. He remained seated at his desk, quite calm and collected, till they came in. One of the police inspectors, I think Love was his name, had a special commission to capture Collins. But it was Inspector McFeely who came to our room, looking a little bit frightened. He went round searching the different desks and seemed desperately anxious to finish his task and get out. She describes how there's an altercation between the two of them and Colin starts a political discussion with McFeely. McFeely uh, is Irish uh, and McFeely is probably a home ruler rather than a unionist. And McFeely gives out to Collins about how Sinn Féin have ruined the Irish party and Collins pushes back. Mick sat very casually on his desk with one leg swinging and told him in no measured terms what sort of work he was engaged on. He was scathing in his remarks about it. What sort of legacy will you leave to your family looking for blood money? Could you not find some honest work to do? Inspector was writhing under the attack. When McFeely enters that room, he's encountering the Minister for Finance for the First Oil in his office. There must have been a lot of paper evidence in the room. He probably had the best chance any police officer or military person had during the War of Independence to capture the key military and the key financial figure on the Irish side. And uh, he failed. And the big question is, did he fail because he was incompetent or did he fail because he was hedging his bets, wondering how things were going to turn out in the future? Collins was ultimately not arrested and it's still unclear whether or not McFeely, the Dublin Metropolitan Police Inspector, knew who he was talking to. We can't ever know for sure, but perhaps McFeely did recognise Collins 
and let him go. But whatever the truth of it, he certainly had the best chance. And it's certainly the only case we have where Collins at his workplace is in a conversation, in an altercation with a police officer and doesn't get captured. After that raid, most of the senior people, like Collins, avoided 6 Harcourt Street as it was considered too dangerous. When we talk about the GPO, for example, which is, which is such a symbolic building, such an important, significant building in the story of how the Irish state came to be, people were in there for six days. But in the case of this building, they were here for 12 years. And all of the key personalities were associated with this building in some ways. Key encounters, key meetings took place, key decisions were made here. And the most important decision that was made here was not just the idea of creating an independent Irish parliament, but the actual decision to found Doyle Aaron was made here. And that makes this house probably the most significant house in historical terms in this city. And that was Kuno Sheridan there, speaking about just one episode in the life of 6 Harcourt Street, a building with a long and fascinating history. It's the subject of a documentary called Iverishay this Wednesday evening at half past nine on TG Car. Well, that's all we've got time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. Our researcher is Liz Gillis. Our reader tonight was Cathy Rose O'Brien. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE Radio 1. For now, from me, Miles Dungan, and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening.